Let's go ahead and uh, flip to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. And uh, as we flip there, we'll just pray. Lord, we're mindful of Pastor Ryan over there in Colorado, who's just bringing your word to the sheep today. And just think of dear friends of mine, Lord, Chris in Belt, Montana, and Jason in Tennessee, and Rob in Corvallis, Ken in Lakeview, and and then we all have just dear friends that are just laboring to to bring your word to the people today. We just pray that uh, in all these fellowships uh, where truth is being taught, that your spirit would just bring a great increase today and just captivate hearts and change lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you probably know, we're working through the book of Luke normally on a Sunday morning, and we found ourselves this week in Luke chapter 21, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. And I've known that this chapter has been coming, you know, for, for months and months. Uh, it's a chapter that deals primarily with end times or eschatology. And I've taught through uh, the Olivet Discourse, you know, in, in Mark and in Matthew, probably three times I've worked through that chapter. And, um, you know, and I've just been challenged this time, you know, to, to come to it with humility and to not be dogmatic. You know, I've just, I guess I've just been realizing that there's so many amazing men of God who love Jesus and are, are themselves trying to rightly divide the word of truth. And there's these incredible men that all differ on their views of how to interpret Luke 21. And so, you know, as I was reviewing my notes, I just, you know, just kept praying for humility and just, you know, asking the Lord to help, you know, change my heart to not be super forceful in my view of it. And, um, you know, as I studied all day yesterday, Lindsay got home from a women's prayer meeting at about 10.30, and she was like, how's the study going? And I was like, man, I just, I'm struggling right now because I just want to represent the Lord rightly and, and you know, be loving towards my brothers who have different opinions, and I just, and I, I just want to be better equipped to do that. And so she said, well, why don't you just teach on something else and take a couple of weeks to just pray and keep studying? And I was like, it's 10.30 at night, you know, what else am I going to teach on before tomorrow morning? And and um, I was like, so I think I'm just going to keep, keep doing it, keep, keep going on. And Luke 21 and, you know, 1.30 in the morning, I'm still pouring the, the coal to it. And I just like, I just need more time. And so I just, Lord, what would you have me teach? And I just felt him say, Roy, just go to 2 Timothy 2. And so I went to 2 Timothy 2 and I, it was just like, boom, wow, Lord, this is your heart for the day, for us today. And and so, um, so that's why we're here in Second Timothy chapter two, and I'm just, uh, I'm just loving what the Lord's impressing on my heart. And uh, so, let's go ahead and, and get into it. He says, "You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, in the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also." In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives us a kind of a list of seven occupations that a Christian should 
occupy themselves with, occupy their time with. And the first one that we get to is there in verse two, a tutoring teacher, a tutoring teacher, you know, one that would, uh, you know, teach faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Paul is given this, or Timothy is given this charge by Paul. He had a responsibility to disciple faithful men and to teach faithful men the truths of the word of God. But I believe that, you know, this is applicable to us today as well, whether you're male or female, young or old, that we too are to teach faithful men or women who in turn will go and teach faithful men and women. You know, it's the whole pay it forward concept. I don't know if you've seen the movie pay it forward, but you know, it's the difference between two plus two plus two plus two plus two equaling 10 or two times two times two times two equaling 32. You know, it's so much easier for, you know, one man to train somebody and then know that that guy's going to go train somebody. So I can focus on training another guy. And I know that out there, exponentially, the church is growing. D.L. Moody said, you know, I'd rather set 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. You know, and who wouldn't, you know, when you got that big yard project or, you know, you're, you're doing some construction or something and you're like, man, I could use a couple other guys to help me lift this stuff or whatever. Of course, it's just common sense to get more muscle and more hands doing the labor. And, you know, each one of us is commissioned by Jesus. You know, we were reminded by Bill James just, you know, a month ago uh, with Agents for Christ to, you know, we were reminded of that commission or that command to go unto all the world and to make disciples. You know, and, and a beautiful thing was be, would be if we got to lead those people to the Lord ourselves. You know, how wonderful it is to get to lead somebody to Christ and then to get to disciple them. It, you're kind of like a spiritual father uh, in the, at the base of it all. But, you know, it's also very special to, you know, there's a young believer who needs encouragement and equipping and you can come alongside of them and lift their arms up. Uh, yeah, two weeks ago, you know, we were in Hebrews chapter five talking about how those, those Hebrews were just camping out in the elementary principles of the faith. And it was time for them to no longer be just taught the ABCs of the Christian faith, but to go out and to teach others the, the oracles of God, the truths about God. And, you know, and Paul says, you know, by now you ought to be teaching or whoever the author of Hebrews was, you know, by now you ought to be teaching other people. Are you teaching other people? This was to the whole, the whole church there in Hebrews. Uh, you know, it, it was time for them to graduate from first grade and to grow. And so as we're just encouraged to teach faithful men or teach faithful women, you know, the question is, you know, well, how old do I have to be in the faith before I can start teaching somebody? Or how long should I be going to Calvary Chapel before I can have a discipleship group or something? And, you know, I can't answer that. You know, I want to say if you've been here for six months, then by golly, you should have somebody that you're discipling. Just naturally, you should be teaching somebody. But, you know, perhaps that's not the case. You know, maybe for Two months you've been coming here and it's time. But I would at least just ask, man, be prayerful about it. Lord, is there one person who's young in the faith that needs me to come alongside them and teach them the basic principles? 
and equip them. You know, uh, it's, I was just so encouraged a couple years ago, there was a man in Corvallis by the name of Harry McKay. And uh, Harry McKay is with the Lord now. But when I met him, he was 91. And uh, just one of my heroes, you know, he uh, was in World War II. He was a military, uh, I don't think he was a general, but he was high up as an officer. And he went and fought in Guadalcanal. And uh, he was one of the first men, American men on the scene at Hiroshima after the atomic bomb went off. And just an incredible guy. And I got to know him. 91 years old, he'd walk all over town. He's walking up hills really fast. And you're like, holy cow, I want to be like that when I'm 91. But I'll never forget when uh, we opened up the bullet, or uh, well, we had these inserts in the bulletin, you know, that you would fill out and, you know, would you like to know more about Calvary Chapel? You check the box. Would you like to know more about baptism? Check the box, you know, and one of them was, I would like to be baptized. Check the box. And we got one of those inserts one day from Harry and he was 93 at the time, a 93 year old guy that was saying, I want to be discipled. And we're all looking around the room like, who's going to disciple this guy? He's 93, you know, like it, it was incredible that he wanted to be discipled. We should always want to grow, but really we're all like felt inadequate in and of ourselves. This guy probably already knows all that there is to know about the Lord, but he always, this guy was teachable, you know, from the, from the start. And so there's that, there's both of those needs in our lives, huh? You know, we need to be teachable, always able to grow, always willing to grow, Man, but we also need to be willing to teach. And for many, I would say it's time to teach. You know, um, this is just something that the Lord has just been burning on our elders' hearts that we can't do the work ourselves as five men. I certainly can't do it as one. You know, and and we've had this one-on-one discipleship group list that's had, you know, think five girls names on it and these girls haven't been discipled in probably the four months that their names have been on the list maybe longer and we just sat there as elders on Sunday and go we have to be honest you know we're like oh yeah I was gonna call that one but you know this happened and uh and we just said no we need to be honest that we failed we failed you know we need to be discipling people but there's more than just the four or five girls on the list there's you know I'm just looking around the room and I'm like oh man if somebody would take that young man under his wing and, you know, just take him to Dairy Queen once a week and just go through Romans, a chapter of Romans every week. Or, you know, if someone would just take this group of girls and just, you know, let's just spend time together. I want to invest in your life. How spectacular that would be and how we would see the church grow. Not for our own good. I certainly don't want to just have a mega church for the sake of being prideful about it. But man, how incredible if we're making disciples here and people are teaching people who are teaching people who are teaching people who are teaching people. You know, there's lots of new believers that just need someone, you know, they don't know anything about the word of God. And so anybody with any sort of knowledge above theirs could teach them. And so, uh, you know, be praying about if it's time for you, if it's time, because my, I would venture to say, yes, it is time. So a tutoring teacher, can you remember that? The next occupation that we should just strive for is in verse three, and that's a single minded soldier. You know, we all know the little children's church song, you know, I may never march in the infantry 
ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I've been teaching that to my little boy, Russell, and he's just, oh, he's totally into the yes, sir, and the flying all around his room, you know, and making the neighbor's dog bark from his artillery, you know, and all that stuff, you know, but it's true. You know, we're in the Lord's army, as cliche or childish it might sound, you know, we need to allow ourselves to, to come to that place of understanding You know, Paul tells us that we're in a very real spiritual battle with a very real enemy who's out to kill and take scalps. (laughs) You know, he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. The good thing is, is that we're all given weapons to fight back. You know, but we're told by Paul that these weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I bought myself a gun and a hand grenade. You know, I'm going to take down the enemy. No, it's They're mighty in God, Paul tells us, for pulling down strongholds. Not only are we given weapons such as prayer and the word of God, but we're given the gospel as well. But we're given armor to help protect us against the wiles of the enemy because he sure is crafty and knows how to get, you know, try to flank us and outmaneuver us. We're soldiers. And Paul even used that phrase that those who served alongside of him were fellow soldiers in Christ. And so as you read verse three, he says, you therefore, as a soldier, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I am a huge military history buff, can't, can't get enough military movies or books to read. But uh, one of the things that's, that's always amazed me was the 101st Airborne in Belgium back in World War II, back in 1944, they got shoved into this Ardennes forest uh, one night, just all of a sudden told, you know, the Germans are coming, we got to go into the forest. And it was snowing and it was beginning that December was the worst winter in 30 years. What luck, huh? You know, like finally, you know, what a week to go camping, you know, when people are trying to kill you and stuff. Worst winter in 30 years, negative 30 degrees at times. And they were thrust in without proper food, clothing, or ammunition. In fact, by the end of this conflict called the Battle of the Bulge, uh, each soldier was down to about one bullet, you know? And so just the, the amount of just horror and in, you know, hardship that these guys had to endure, they'd get trench foot to where their feet would about fall off. You know, they would freeze out there in the night. You know, one guy, as he's interviewed, he says, you know, when it's cold at night and I'm, I'm laying in bed, I tell my wife, I'm so glad I'm not in Belgium right now, you know? And I go out and I'm scraping my windshield off and I'm like, oh man, I'm so glad I'm not in Belgium right now. You know, I'm so glad that I can go inside and get warm. I don't, you know, but you know, if the world will endure for something, endure the most hard experience that you could possibly think of, how much more shall we believers endure hardship for his name? Maybe not even for his name, but just things that he's allowing us to go through that we can entrust ourselves to him, like First Peter tells us, as to a faithful creator. But as soldiers, you know, we do go through the hardship. 
You know, even, even the, to the point of dying for him. You know, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the key of the book of Acts, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses of me. And that word witness in the Greek is the word martyr. It's where we get our word martyr. So you're going to get power to be martyrs for me. That's hinting that there's going to be some sort of suffering that we're going to have to endure. Testifying of Jesus even to the point of death. And you know, it's been said that dying for Jesus, uh, you know, doesn't make you a martyr, but it just shows who the real martyrs already are. You know, Paul said as he was alive, I die daily. I die daily. Paul was a martyr way before he was ever beheaded in Rome. And Paul and the other apostles, they would hazard their life for the gospel's sake. They didn't care when people made fun of them because they were already dead. You know, they didn't care when people would beat him because I'm just a carcass here. (laughs) You know, I'm just a moving, walking carcass, walking dead, if you will. You know, that word martyr, we're going to go through the book of Acts after we finish Luke, and you're going to find that that word martyr is shown 29 times in 28 chapters of Acts. You know, the early church was a praying church. You know, the early church was a church that was in the word, and the early church was a church that was being uh, martyred for his name. But it's not all bad being a martyr. Bishop Sheen, a martyr, said, one advantage of being thrown on your back is that you face heaven. You know, man, as we're enduring, oh, it just points you in the right direction to pray, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis said that suffering is God's megaphone to get the world's attention. You know, the Lord allows us to go through trials so that the world can look at us and see how we respond in the midst of those trials. You know, like Lot, as his children had died and his entire, you know, massive ranching operation had been destroyed by Satan and he'd been plagued with everything you can think of. It came down to where he had boils and he's scraping off his blisters with a piece of pottery. That's like the bottom of the totem pole, right? And his wife just says, why don't you just curse God and die? And I just love Job's reaction when he just says, Hey, don't we know who God is? You know, that he gives and he takes away. You know, we, we take the good with the bad and blessed be the name of the Lord. Right now, my, um, one of my mom's sisters is on her deathbed. Just a hard time for the family. And I just been just praying for my uncle Stan and he, uh, is, you know, just been taking care of her these last couple of days. And he writes on a, on a blog just incredible things about the Lord and incredible things about eternity. And I just wrote back to him or I made a note on his blog that, man, I'm just so blessed by your attitude, Uncle Stan, because, you know, the world is watching you and non-believers and old college buddies and old work, you know, old guys that you work with or whatever, they're all watching you and your testimony of eternity and your testimony of how great God is. When we suffer, it's just like putting a megaphone to our mouths because everyone's watching and they want to know how we'll react. Flip over to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians and we're going to talk about Paul's sufferings. 
Maybe as we read that, you could just picture Paul as this soldier up here on the PowerPoint. You know, it's been said that as soldiers go through battle and conflict, you know, those that are shell-shocked from it, they'll get what they call the thousand-yard glare, you know, where they just look off into what seems like eternity because of the, the conflict that they've been through. And just picture Paul as he's talking, you know, really shell-shocked at times through the, the suffering that he's endured as a Christian. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more, and labors more abundant, in stripes or whippings above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Has anybody here even been in a peril? <laughs> you know, here's like many, many different types of peril. Uh, and, uh, you know, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily. You know, the biggest suffering that he went through was his deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Man, just the sufferings that he endured, that my life just can't even begin to compare with. And just flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul said that uh, he didn't want them to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. I mean, have you ever been anything, perhaps... In your physical suffering, you know, maybe you've lost someone close to you and, and you can certainly relate. But what about just spiritually suffering to where you would despair even of life? Paul wanted to die. You know, you hear that struggle in Philippians chapter two, you know, he, he's like, man, I, I could be martyred right now. And you know what? I'm OK with that for me to die. I, I get to go be with Jesus in paradise. And that sounds pretty good to me. But I know that staying here, you know, it would be better for me and you guys. I could keep training you and equipping you. But really, he despaired of life, the suffering that he went through as a faithful soldier. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see more of that. As he says, you know, we are, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Do you ever feel like that? That you're just hard pressed on every side as if you're in a battle and the enemy was just surrounding you, you know, from every side. And you know what? He is. He's bombarding us from every side, which is exhausting and demoralizing. You know, frequently soldiers in situations like this just want to die. 
I just despaired even of life. But the encouraging thing about being in an army, the army of the Lord, is that men that fight in a battle together with one another become as close or closer than brothers. They train together. You know, when they get to boot camp, they get their heads shaved together. You know, they go into the restrooms and, you know, all of the toilets are just right there in the open for everyone to watch. You know, you get really close. I wouldn't know. I have to have a public restroom with like floor to the ceiling, you know, type doors and stuff. But, you know, they're just totally close, totally real with each other. No problem. You know, they travel long distances together. They fight together. Have you ever been in a fight you know, and with someone, you ganged up on somebody or something like that. When I was in the second grade, this guy was kind of picking on my cousin. And uh, so I went and jumped him, you know. <laughs> and so here me and my cousin are just really just kind of wrestling, having a s- scrap with this guy. And he ended up getting both of us in a headlock. <laughs> and as we're down there, <clears throat> just kind of looked over at each other. Hey, this is kind of nice to go through this with you, huh? Okay, yeah. You know, we had the fellowship of suffering. You know, and as soldiers are in this fight together, they just grow close as they defend and suffer and conquer and die together. They're close. And when you're in a battle with fellow soldiers, you can come alongside one another, help one another, defend one another, lift one another up and give one another medical aid. You know, we can cheer one another on and say, come, follow me. Follow hard after me. You know, I'm not going to ask you to go into any type of danger that I myself am not going to go. Let's go in it to get into it together and let's conquer for Jesus. If you get wounded, I'll lift you up. If you get discouraged, man, I'll be there for you. And man, as I've studied this and just considered this and forgive me, maybe it's a little extreme and this guy's just totally crazy about, you know, studying the military and stuff like that, you know, but really I just keep getting a picture of prayer meetings. You know, I I really get a picture of the pulse, but really all throughout the body of Christ where there's times where soldiers can just come and say, man, I'm being beat down by the enemy. Pray for me and have a couple people come alongside you and lift you up. Just like Aaron and her lifted Moses's arms up in the midst of the battle. And when Moses' arms were raised, the battle was won. But when his arms, you know, grew tired, the the battle would be lost. And so uh, Aaron and Hur came and just lifted his arms up for him. And I love prayer meetings when we actually physically do that. And we just come along, people. Let's lift his arms up and just, you know, it's just a symbol of that we're here. We're helping. We're fighting the battle with you. You know, uh, one of my friends was just reading a book and he had to email me this little snippet from it. Uh, It's this book called Roman Battle Tactics where he found this picture of the orb formation. When soldiers would get surrounded, they'd get into this orb formation. Let me just read what he wrote to me. He said, orbs means world or circular. The orbis formation was usually formed in emergencies. When a unit or complete army was surrounded by the enemy and it was clearly designed for all around defense. Little history of it. When Marius was marching towards Serta in 105 BC, his army was surprised at dusk 
by the combined cavalry of Jugurtha and Bocchus, king of Mauritania. The enemy attacked, he wrote, not in orderly lines, but in swarms. Romans defended themselves as best they could, but as the marching column of foot and horse coalesced into disorganized masses, the Africans surrounded the Roman army. Gradually, however, under the guidance of centurions and veterans, the groups formed into orderly orbs, thus at once protecting themselves on all sides and presenting an orderly front to the attacks of the enemy. Using his bodyguard of picked cavalry, Marius aided the orbs under most pressure, and by hand signals for vocal orders could not be heard above the din of combat, he eventually succeeded in coordinating a retreat to two nearby hills. The following day, just before dawn, the Romans charged down from the hills, screaming war cries and with trumpets blaring. The Numidians and Mauritanians camped at the foot of the hills. They were too befuddled after a night of rashes celebration to react to the unexpected assault. Many were cut down while the rest, including Jugurtha and Boca, scattered. And so as I read that, man, do you get the picture of when we're surrounded by the enemy, we then surround each other and defend each other with the armor and the gifts that the Lord's given us. We fight for one another. Your marriage is hurting. Come to the prayer meeting. We're going to pray for you. You know, or your marriage is hurting. Just come up front here and let people surround you. Or you're being attacked by the enemy or there's temptation in your life that you're just not being victorious over. Man, get in the middle and let other soldiers surround you and fight for you. You know, I I love, I I even highlighted that, you know, in, in the morning, the victory came and just so excited for this week of fasting coming up because every morning at 6.30, we're going to get together here in the church and pray. And then at lunchtime, we're going to get together and pray at lunchtime, those that can make it. And then in the evening, we're going to get together and worship and pray. We're going to fight. And man, it might just be one huge week of, of battle and one huge week of conflict. But you know what? I'm confident the Lord's going to give the victory in whatever you're struggling with. You know, so Paul said, you know, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. He goes on to say, we're perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In verse four there in second Timothy two, I want to flip back there. Continuing on with the idea of um, just being a soldier for him, says no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You know, no one in the middle of a battle can get up in the middle of the conflict and catch the jet airplane home and, you know, just hang out at home for a little while and, you know, go buy a house or go buy a new car, go to the, you know, go get a puppy at the Humane Society, you know, and wash the car. And you know what? I probably should get back to the battle while all of his comrades are back there, you know, taking hits and explosions and wondering where in the world did Billy go or whatever. If there's a Billy here, I'm not thinking specifically about you, but not a lot of Billy's out there. 
You know, it says no soldier can go and get entangled in the affairs of this life or involved in the affairs of this life. Go in AWOL, if you will, absent without leave. You know, if you're absent without leave, you just, uh, you, you, you bum everybody out that's around you. You know, they're wondering where you are in the midst of the battle. And I think that's why John says in 1 John chapter 3, you know, that those who are Christians should not love the world or the things of the world. Because everything that's in the world is at war with God, is at enmity with God. And so that's why we as believers, we just can't get sucked in to the cares of this life, the things that would draw us away. You know, for a soldier, it would be better for them to have just never enlisted than for them to go into the army and then to, to abandon and to go AWOL. The punishments are severe. In the same way for Christians, 2 Peter 2.20 says, you know, after we've escaped the pollutions of the world through knowing Jesus, if we're entangled with those pollutions again and overcome, the latter end is worse than the beginning for us. It would have been better for us not to have ever known the way of Jesus than to known the way of Jesus and to walk away from it. And he uses the picture, it's like a dog returning to his vomit. And we've all seen it. Come on, let's be real here. You know? You see the dog throw up over there, he walks over here, he starts walking back over there, you're like, what's he doing? Don't do it. What What are you doing? Oh, I've heard about it, but I've never seen it. Oh, no, don't do it. (laughs) You know, and then he starts for reals. Thought that was just folklore. Didn't know they actually. Yeah, it's disgusting. And man, when you see believers and you praise God, they got all that out of their system, you know, and they're, they're Christians now. And then they start going back. You're like, oh, no, don't do it. No, please. You're pleading with them. It's disgusting. Don't go back. The end is worse for you than the beginning ever was. And so as soldiers, we need to develop a wartime mentality that we would get in the fight, fight the battle. You know, Paul said in second Timothy where he's, you know, it's his last letter. He's just about to be beheaded by Nero and his closing thoughts are, you know what? I finished well. I fought the fight. I've ran the race. I've laid hold of eternal life. There's no time to celebrate right now, guys. We've got a battle to fight. Robert Maupin said, we'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but we only have one short hour before sunset to obtain them. And so let's fight together. If you see one of the soldiers slacking off, say, come on, follow me. Let's charge together. So a single-minded soldier, and I bet you're wondering if I'm ever going to get off that little kick. Don't worry, we are. Uh, And we see in verse five, an athlete. Also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know, Paul says in first Corinthians nine that, you know, everyone that's in a race is running the race, but be the one that's running to win it, run to win the race, not to just fill up a lane of traffic. But run to win. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And he says, you know what? As an athlete, I've got to discipline my body and bring it under subjection. I've got to wake up early and I've got to do the push-ups and the sit-ups and I've got to drink the raw eggs, you know, and nobody likes to do that, but you got to do it. You know, you got to discipline yourself. 
or you're never going to prosper. You've got to discipline your body lest you be disqualified. You've got to run the race with endurance, Hebrews tells us. Looking unto Jesus, he's the finish line. He's the author and finisher of our faith. We've got to lay aside the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Why run the race with the cute little pink ankle weights on, you know? That'll just slow you down. Eric Little, who uh, the movie Chariots of Fire was about, he had a heart to be a missionary for China. And he was always torn between running and being a missionary. And, and that was just a constant struggle in his life. But in the movie, he has a really good point. It's probably true if it's in the movie, right? Um, he said, I believe God gave me a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. And as he's talking to his sister, he says, you were right. It's not just fun to run. To win is to honor him. Man, run the race. To do anything else would be to hold the Lord in contempt. He's making you fast. He's putting on the right types of shoes and he's equipping you to do the race. And to give it up would be to hold him in contempt. If you don't compete according to the rules of the race, you get disqualified. And that's always a bummer, isn't it? You know, the guy hits the sweet home run and then the next day the news comes out that he's been on steroids. Or the guy wins the, the um, Tour de France, you know, a couple years ago and uh, was the first guy to, to get caught cheating in the middle of the race as he was winning at the 17th stage of the race. To make it that far and then to be caught cheating and to be disqualified. You know, not that our God is a God of rules, but he's righteous and we're to be holy as he is holy. And how sad to come to the end of our race and to realize we were just taking up space. Let's run in such a way that we could obtain the crown, not have it stripped from us. Um, <clears throat> we then have the hardworking farmer in verse six and and just quickly, you know, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. You know, Jesus uses that parable, the sower and the seed, and how as the seed is cast out, it lands on four different types of soil. You know, some of the soil is stony ground. And when the seed lands on it, you know, the, the sun scorches it and burns it. Or another ground, you know, a, a bird might come and pluck it away, take it away. Another ground, you know, the, the thorns come and choke it out. And Jesus tells us the thorns are the cares of this world that take away that seed. But some of the seed falls on cultivated soil and it goes down deep and it's covered up and it dies and it, you know, then it lives and it brings forth much fruit. And we, as the hardworking farmers, we're to scatter that seed out. You know, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered. But God's the one that gives the increase. How encouraging is that if you've been you know, trying to be a witness and you're like, no one's ever getting saved. I don't know what Rory's talking about. Why open my mouth? I'm just getting persecuted. You never know when that seed is going to germinate and bring forth fruit. You just never know. And so part of our job as a hardworking farmer is to cast the seed out. Another job is to cultivate the soil. And you do that through prayer. We're always praying that the hearts on Sunday morning won't be hard hearts, 
but there'll be fertile, fresh soil ready to receive the seed of God's word. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the vineyard to do the task. And today, that's our prayer. You know, our prayer is that you guys will be that and I'll be that. You know, workers being sent out, saving and discipling and saving and discipling and growing the kingdom of God. You know, I just think about, uh, you know, growing up on a farm and doing farming myself, but specifically thinking about my dad, who, you know, such an example, hardworking man, you know, and, and I have these pictures of him when I was a little kid, um, how he'd be home from work and he's just totally tanned from being out, you know, riding his horse in the sun and, and working out there in the field and just dark skin from the sun and just shirts that are just covered in grease and chaff and cow manure, you know, and just totally just, my mom used to say that he'd just come home and just be so exhausted. He'd just fall down on the couch and just practically be dead, you know, it's because he was a hardworking farmer up early, you know, feeding the, the cattle and up early, you know, or all night long, you know, bailing the hay when the dew was just right. You know, but hardworking nonetheless. And man, it takes labor. It takes labor to take the time to pray and cultivate the soil. It takes labor to be equipped to where you have the seed to cast. But man, I encourage you guys, be strong in the grace that's in you so that you can do this. It's not about you anyways. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit doing it through you. Being a single-minded soldier. Being a, an athlete being a hardworking farmer. And then uh, we're going to just kind of skip some of the chapter for the sake of time. In verse 14, we see the diligent workmen, the diligent, or, or again, you know, the, the hardworking, lab, laborious workmen. Verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers and be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're to be diligent workers that don't need to be afraid because we're taking time to rightly divide the word. That word diligent means you put effort into it. You labor or specifically you study. And it's not just a message for a pastor or for me. It's for you guys too. I'm so blessed when I hear of guys in the church that, you know, as they're on their way to their Antone or as they're on their way over to Redmond, they're listening to teaching tapes to grow in their understanding of the word as much as they can. They're just having the word poured into their life. They're being diligent to study the word, rightly dividing the word. That means that they're cutting straight lines. It speaks of plowing, how they're rightly dividing the field. They're cutting straight lines, or you could be sowing in a straight pattern. That's what rightly dividing means. You know, not just making the Bible say what you want it to say or watering it down so you don't get in trouble and don't offend anybody, but rightly dividing the word. And then in verse 20, we have the next occupation. And it, it's not much of an occupation, but it's being a set apart vessel 
or a sanctified vessel. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And so this sanctified, set-apart vessel, a vessel of honor. You know, think about in your house, the vessels of honor, the flower vase, you know, the jewelry box, the hot tub, you know, the, the goldfish bowl, you know. Now think of the vessels of dishonor. Yeah, we all know, right? You know, my grandpa chewed tobacco and he had a spittoon by his lazy boy. We kids, we get a little rambunctious sometimes, you know, and knock over that spittoon, you know, woo, clean that up, boy. Okay. You know, paper towel, you know, I hate that vessel of this. I hope it's burning in Babylon right now. Um, You know, there's, there's the vessels of dishonor. And, you know, the interesting thing is that it says here that, you know, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from being a vessel of dishonor, he'll be a vessel for honor. My pastor's wife in Lakeview, Audrey, she uh, was in high school and she did something that I think only people in Lakeview could do. Uh, She found a toilet and planted it in her yard and put potting soil in it and planted flowers and really had the most spectacular arrangement of flowers growing up out of this toilet. And you know, you guys might be a stinking toilet. A vessel of dishonor full of wrath and envy and hypocrisy and hatred and lust and adultery and idolatry and just covetousness and slander. And you're like this big thundercloud, you know, that's just waiting to just strike something. And you come in here today and that's you. But if anyone will cleanse himself, and really it's not even you that does it, it's just you realizing you need to be cleansed and taking yourself to the cleaner, then you'll be made a vessel of honor. You know, something that the Lord can use, something set apart for every good work. And as that vessel of honor set apart for every good work, part of that good work is verse 22, fleeing from youthful lusts, fleeing youthful lusts. You know, those youthful lusts are the powerful ones, those ones that tend to hold you. You know, Ronald Reagan said middle age means you have two temptations And you choose the one that will get you home by nine o'clock, you know, not much of a temptation, (laughs) but you know, those youthful lusts that are just binding and strong, you need to flee from them. And that word flee speaks of a strong, hard to pin down action, wrestling away from it, pulling away, running. It's the same word that was used when Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Here's this gorgeous royal woman who's, who's coming after this young man and making sexual advances towards him. Come on, come lie with me. You know how you want it. You know, and, all, and no, I really shouldn't. No, I, you know, 10 days later, she grabs him by the robe and says, now, I mean, that was like fatal attraction, you know, or something like that. And what does he do? He flees and he, he does something. And I don't know what his move was, but he wrestled away and ripped, you know, whatever it was, she was holding on so tight, it ripped his clothes off of him and he ran away naked. I don't know what's better. Uh, probably fleeing, even if it's naked. But no, <laughs> you 
You know, he ended up getting accused for rape because of it. But, you know, uh, he, he ran. Nothing was going to keep him there. But he didn't just flee the youthful lust as that sanctified vessel. But what else are we to do? We're to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord with, with a pure heart. You know, you got to drop what you're doing and get the heck out of there. And then you got to start pursuing righteous things and faith and love. You know, most people who flee temptation usually leave a forwarding address, you know, for that temptation to meet them at. You know, it's like, man, forget it. It's in the past. Pursue the deep things of God. And then we'll close with the last way we can occupy our time. And that's by being a gentle servant. Verse 24, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. You might underline this, able to teach. Each one of us is to be a a servant or a doulos or a bond servant. You read about the doulos, the bond servant back in Deuteronomy, when a slave will serve his master for a certain amount of time. And when the year of freedom comes where he could be set free, the bond servant says, you know what? I love my master and I love serving him so much. I choose to be his servant for life. And they would take that bond servant to the door of the house And they would put his ear up to the doorpost and they would drive a wooden peg through his ear. You know, so piercings are biblical, just so you know, Uh, you know, and that person would be then and therefore out a bond servant or a doulos. And we're to be douloses. We're to say, you know what? I get to serve my master now, not out of obligation, but willingly. And a servant must be willing and able to teach. And so, man, just teaching faithful people who in turn will teach faithful people. Verse 25, we'll just close. Stuart can come on up. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive captive by him to do his will. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.